0: Well, this morning, like I mentioned, we're going to work through part of 1 Samuel chapter 13. Um, we're actually going to just go through verse 14, which is what Kristen read for us this morning. And uh, as we do this, we, we understand that we're going to leave Israel hanging in the midst of, of a battle threat. So we'll pick that up uh, next week as we finish out the chapter. Um, but one thing we need to cover from the from the beginning is a little bit of a, a question we have starting in verse 1 of 1 Samuel 13. and. And as we as we study the Bible together, we come across these things from time to time as we're just working our way systematically through the Scriptures that require our attention uh, just on a we have to understand what's going on level, and and we and we hit one of those this morning. So I'm going to be really brief, but I'm going to explain this because uh, you'll you'll notice that it needs explaining if I don't say anything, and you'll and you'll think I'm you know not doing my job if I don't if I don't explain it. So I'm going to explain it. So, 1 Samuel 13, verse 1. If you have it open, uh, some of you maybe are reading from the ESV, some of you are reading from the the Christian Standard Bible. It depends on the English translation that you're reading from. Of course, we know this was originally written in Hebrew. Um, But if you're reading from the Christian Standard Bible, uh, which is what Kristen read for us this morning, it says, Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. That's what the CSB said. Now, who has a different version? You can raise your hand. Read from the, it says something different, doesn't it? You're reading from the ESV. It says, Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, so on and so forth. And then we go into the narrative. Um, so, so we've got some differences there. Uh, the CSB it talks about about this 30 year in terms of the age of saul the ESV talks about saul being there for one year the, these differences a 40 year thing is thrown in there in the esv niv translation if anybody's reading from that it basically says the same thing as the esv but it gets fancy and puts 30 years in brackets and gives you one big long dash after the 40 in uh in the in the, in the second part of the verse and so, and so, all these translations—they they can be a little different—and they—and they probably all have a footnote telling you something about this verse and some original manuscript for a reason I'll explain in a minute. But literal note there, um, and and so we need to address that for, for a reason I'll explain in a minute. But literally, the Hebrew text of verse one reads: Saul was the son of one year when he became king, and he reigned two years. That's what the Hebrew says. He was the son of a year, and he re, and he reigned two years. Of course, the immediate problem is that it makes it sound like Saul was a one-year-old when he started being king, and he was three by the time he was done, which is, which is an obvious problem. Not least of all because we meet Jonathan, his son in this text, who's old enough to leave this, this special forces unit against the Philistine garrison. So he's got an adult son who's engaging in battle. So clearly Saul's not a one-year-old king, and he didn't quit when he was three for so many reasons. Um, so, so, so we have to figure out what to do with this. And, and uh, at, at the end of the day, I think, and, and, and many scholars get here, uh, we, we just need to, to think that the basic Hebrew translation is right. So Saul was the son of one year when he became king and he reigned for two years. Uh, this will actually start to matter as we study the text a little bit. Uh, but part of the reason the translators try to smooth this over, first of all, is we don't have an expression like son of one year in English. That, that's, that's difficult to understand. Uh, it, sound, it sounds awkward. But to say that Saul is the son of one year when he became king can reference the fact that between Saul's anointing privately by Samuel, if you remember that from chapters 9 and 10, and between his actual public acknowledgement as king, which we saw at the end of the whole Nahash the Ammonite incident a couple chapters ago, a year probably passed. So in a sense, Saul's, if we can put it, gestation period as becoming king was about a year long. That's probably what the text indicates here. And then he reigned for two years. The trouble there is, in Acts 13, Paul, the apostle, says uh, in Acts 13, he says that Saul reigned for 40 years in Israel. So that's where you get 40 plus 2 in in some of the translations. Um, And and while that's probably true, it seems like what the Hebrew text is getting after here is that Saul really reigned two years with the Lord's blessing in Israel. He's going to keep going for a while after we see his downfall here. He's around for a while. He's still doing kingly things for a while, but he's not doing so with the Lord's blessing. He's rejected uh, by the Lord as king here probably after after just two years. Um, so so I, I tell you all that. The 30 years thing, some of it has 30 years. That comes from the Septuagint, the old Greek translation of the Old Testament. They put 30 in there trying to make sense of what's going on. Um, and, and I just tell you all that because it makes me feel better to say it. R- really, at the end of the day, we run into these things in our Bible translations. And what we have to be able to recognize is that these aren't necessary, these aren't causes for us to, to not trust the text or something like that. Something like this can be pulled out, and we say, well, clearly we can't trust the Bible because nobody can even agree on how old Saul was. Uh, but what we have to understand when we come to text uh, issues such as this, um, they are all peripheral in terms of the truth of Scripture. So so there's nothing that hinges on our our salvation hinges on nothing that's true about Saul's age. When we're reading through our Bible, there's no questions like this about the significance of the resurrection of Jesus or the, the character attributes of God or something like this. We do have these little these little questions here and there, but none of them are main things. Um, so again, I, I figured I needed to say something because you'd all notice, and this of course could become very exciting home group discussion this week, uh, if, if, if I didn't at least say something about it. I don't know, you, you, you probably think I should just stop. I'm going to just stop now. But, but there you have some things to think about. Um, anyway, so we, we started in 13, now now we'll get on to the stuff that matters more. So Hebrews, uh, sorry, Samuel 13, 1-14, to 14, um, as we come to these verses, we can really summarize what's happening in this text by asking a question of the text. And the question can be something like, what happens when our ultimate hopes are set on alternatives to the living God and those hopes fail us? And what happens when ultimate hope is set on these alternatives to the living God? That's, what, that's what's going to be worked out for us in this narrative. Uh, we know in the past few chapters of Samuel that a major and reoccurring theme has been that, that of the people of Israel, uh, we, we've seen that there's been this exchange in their trust of the living God, for a trust in a king like the nations. That's what's been going on in Israel's life. Um, The the way this has worked out is that instead of trusting in the Lord to rescue them, what they've wanted is this king like the nations to come and rescue them from the the enemies around them and things of that nature. Instead of trusting in God, they want a king, and Saul has been that king. He's the king uh, that they've, in a sense, exchanged for the care of God. And, and while we saw the people of Israel ultimately repenting from that posture of heart in the last chapter, what we haven't seen yet is the ultimate outworking of, of what the alternative to the living God ultimately delivers. What, what are we really going to end up getting with Saul? We haven't finally been shown that yet. So in the narrative up to this point, we've, we've seen glimpses of how the Lord did work through Saul. He brought some deliverance from Nahash and, and some of those kinds of things. And even if we fast forward to the end of chapter 14... We, we hear about Saul's great and mighty uh, battle deeds at some point in his career as king, but the focus on the narrative here doesn't bring us to a point of saying, oh, how wonderful Saul has turned out to be. Instead, the focus of the narrative demonstrates to us that, that as the people trusted in Saul, as they trusted in this king like the nations instead of the living God, uh, the object of their trust, Saul, ultimately, he couldn't deliver he couldn't bring them the hope. He couldn't bring them the relief. He couldn't bring the ultimate kind of care that they needed. And that lesson comes with potency because in the language I use throughout these chapters, we see that the trouble in Israel has continued to be one of idolatry. And, and idolatry is an old-sounding word. But idolatry is that, is that activity and posture of heart where ultimate trust is placed in someone or something other than the living God. That's, that's what idolatry is. I'm placing my ultimate trust in an alternative. And, and while speaking about idols and idolatry might seem like more of an Old Testament religious archaic kind of, uh, kind of topic and not necessarily a consideration that has any contemporary bearing on our own lives, Uh, we can actually see that the danger of idolatry is something we need to be continually wary of. Because to trust in any alternative to the living God, which is idolatry by definition, to ultimately trust in anything other than the living God is to move away from God and the life that He Himself provides. Um, That's a truth that's made clear in a text like this today. And that's actually a truth that's central to, to our understanding of the whole Bible and our human experience in general. Uh, listen. Listen to this from from C. S. Lewis in his book *Mere Christianity*. This is how he addresses the subject of idolatry. Listen to what he says. He says, "When Satan put into the heads of Adam and Eve, uh, excuse me, what Satan put into the heads of Adam and Eve was the idea that they could be like gods, could set up on their own as if they had created themselves, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside God, apart from God, and out of that hopeless attempt." has come nearly all that we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. And then Lewis says this, The reason why it can never succeed is this, God made us, invented us, as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol, and it will not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on Himself. He Himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn, or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. Now, now these comments from Lewis are helpful because they remind us that when it comes down to it, as as humanity, we don't function in in an ultimately life-sustaining way, separated from the God who gave us life Himself. So, so to seek alternatives to God, to look for ultimate satisfaction maybe, or relief, or purpose, or, or fulfillment, meaning, all of these things apart from the Lord, is, as C.S. Lewis says here, it's like, it's like a, a gas-powered car trying to run on something other than gasoline. It just doesn't work. We'll, we'll excuse C.S. Lewis because he doesn't know about Tesla yet. But, but, but that's, the, that's the analogy as he, as he gives it to us. And, and it's the center of truth that we're helped to see in our verses this morning. We, we answer the question, what happens when our hope is set on alternatives to the living God? Because what we're showing in this text is that while Israel has returned to the Lord in the last chapter, uh, they've gone through the spiritual renewal process. Here in chapter 13, the narrator still wants us to see what alternatives to the Lord actually deliver. And, and he's working this out through the situation involving King Saul because as we know King Saul is in effect the idol of the people at this time or at least he has been the people were were hoping in him here's the king like the nations who's going to bring deliverance they were trusting in Saul as an alternative to God himself and what happens when we do that um, and and so while again this is a, this is an ancient uh, storyline that's here, it does bring us uh, to ask and answer these important questions about our own lives. Because when I'm tempted to place hope, and even when I'm tempted to set my purpose, my ambition, these kinds of things, uh, outside the fact that the Lord is is our life and our hope, we need to know what happens in that situation. what is What does it look like to go after these things which might... Uh, which, which might provide some immediate hope of satisfaction. After all, we saw how, how Saul looked very kingly in his appearance. There might be some immediate hope, immediate appearance of, of, of something that can satisfy, but ultimately we find ourselves removed, and so we, we need to be able to think through these things. So, with all that said, uh, we come to this passage, and, and we'll think through it along these lines. What happens when hope is set on an alternative to the living God? And the first answer we have to that question is found in verses 1 to 4. So if you look there, in verses 1 to 4, we're shown, at just a most basic level, that alternatives to the living God simply don't deliver. They don't, they don't deliver. Um, and, and the verses make that clear in a couple different ways. Uh, one, one way is thematically, another way is a little more grammatically. But, but, but if you look at the text, thematically there we're shown that, that alternatives to God don't deliver through this contrast that's set up here between Saul and Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan is Saul's son. We're actually told that later in the chapter. We don't know anything. Jonathan just shows up on the scene. We don't know about him yet, but but here he is. And there's this contrast that's found in the fact that Saul has been directed to, to fight as Israel's king, but it's actually Jonathan who does the fighting and the winning. We see that in this passage. If you remember back in chapter 10, when Saul was made king, Samuel told Saul to go to Gibeah where there was this Philistine garrison. So there was an outpost of Philistine soldiers in the land of Israel. And a main thing the Lord had said that Saul would do is deliver his people from the Philistines. That was part of his commissioning in chapters 9 and 10. So Saul goes back to his hometown. We remember back then, he goes back to his hometown in Gibeah where there's this outpost of Israel's arch enemies. There's an outpost of the Philistines, happily present as an oppressive military power in the land. And back in chapter 10, Samuel says uh, to Saul, Go there and do what your hand finds to do. In other words, what would a king's hand find to do if you have an enemy outpost in your own hometown? Well, the king's hand would find a, a, a battle to fight there in his own hometown. But here, uh, we, 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 this, this ties into that son of one year thing. Here, um, it seems like a year has gone by... And, and while Saul had defeated the Amalekites in that, in that uh, passage in chapter 11, he still hasn't done anything about the Philistines. In fact, you remember even with the Amalekite situation, where was Saul uh, when, when time was passing? Well, he's just out in the field plowing like he, like he normally was. He wasn't doing any of the kind of kingly stuff he was supposed to do. Now, it seems that one year has passed, and finally Saul starts to get things together. He's assembling an army. That seems like a good thing, except... It's not Saul still who ultimately instigates and successfully attacks the Philistine garrison. Saul actually takes the majority of his army, you see this here, and he goes up to the hill country, and instead it's Jonathan who does the fighting. So so, so the one the people were hoping in, Saul, he still didn't actually do what he was supposed to do. This Jonathan character does. Who, remember, we don't know anything about him at this point, Jonathan. He just kind of drops in on the story. Who is this this character who's taking care of business? Saul should have been doing what Jonathan's doing. This guy just shows up on the scene. He takes care of it. Now Saul's going to take credit for it in these verses, but Saul doesn't do it. So there's this contrast here between Saul and Jonathan. He's not doing what he should have done, and some as of yet unknown person, is getting, the, is getting the business done of dealing with the Philistines. So there's that. And then, and then there's also this other clue that Saul can't really deliver here. Uh, and it comes in the, in the repetition of the word here in verses 3 and 4. So if you look at those verses, we read there how the Philistines hear about Jonathan's attack on their garrison. So Jonathan goes, he, he, he fights against this garrison. The Philistines hear about that And then Saul blows the ram's horn, so the people of Israel hear uh, about what's happened. And then in verse 4, again, all Israel heard the news that Saul's attacked the Philistine garrison, and Israel is now repulsive to the Philistines. So they hear that Saul takes credit for something he actually didn't do, and and they hear that now they've got some really, really, really big trouble with the Philistines, who just had an outpost there before. Now, Now the Philistines are really angry with them because they've done that. There's, a, there's all this hearing going on. So, so, so how is Saul shaking out as the people's hope? Well, they wanted a king like the nations. Saul had been their alternative to the Lord in terms of trusting in a king to, to rescue them. And when we ask how that's going, we have to say it's not going very well because not only... Did Saul not lead the fight against the Philistine group that's there? But now the people of Israel are in a worse place than ever before, uh, because Israel or the Philistines don't just have an outpost in a random Israelite town. Instead, the Philistines, in general as a people group, heard about what's going on, and they're very, very, very upset. Okay, so Saul. The, the the idol if we can put it that saw the alternative to a set hope in God he hasn't delivered he hasn't provided what the people desired for him to provide in fact he's only made things get a whole bunch worse which again helps to answer our question what well, what happens when hope is set on alternatives to the living god and and the answer is first of all those alternatives don't deliver they don't do what we hope they'll do the things that are, that are contrary to a life of trust and rest and obedience to God, those things uh, that, are, that are contrary to trusting in the God who is the source of all good and all life and those kinds of things, those idols, they just don't bring the life that we hope they would. And then and this isn't just an ancient Israel and Saul kind of thing. This is, this is something that continues to be true. I came across one example of this in my reading with, with regard to, to placing our sense of self-worth and professional success, uh, self-worth and, and professional success, those are certainly contemporary idols, aren't they? This is what I'm going to put all of my hope in. This is what I'm going to put all of my meaning of life in, this success-oriented uh, heart. That's something that's certainly uh, prevalent. And, uh, and, and, and listen to this comment. This is, this is a comment made by Madonna about her own professional success. She says this, I have an iron will, And all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. So, so by many standards, you know, Madonna reached high levels of career success, and, and yet yet, what hopeless words these are, because that success ultimately didn't deliver the hope that was, that was placed in them. And then, so we recognize that kind of thing. Alternatives to the hope found in the living God are like trying to use, as C.S. Lewis put it, trying to use something other than gasoline for a gas-powered car it just doesn't work fulfillment doesn't come we find ourselves further and further and further from hope searching and searching longing and longing but there's no no ultimate rest or relief to be found and so that's that's the first part of our answer here what happens when hope is set on alternatives well well the first big answer is they just don't deliver we discover that and then as we keep going here if you look at verses 5 to 7 it's not just that idols don't deliver but they actually if we can put it this way, devolve away from God's life-giving process. There's, there's a kind of devolution that, that idols affect, which is, which is a strange word. I was trying to think of a better word that sounded better, but I couldn't. You know, devolution is what happens, for example, in our house, in the kitchen between breakfast and bedtime. Huge devolution. That's what devolution means. It goes from something that's okay to what in the world is going on here. That's devolution, right? And, 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 and uh, in, in this text, this actually plays out when we see uh, what, what the narrator shares with us here. So in verse 5, we read that instead of the Philistines being defeated, like Saul was supposed to do, he was commissioned to that in chapter 9, instead, uh, after this Jonathan episode, we have the Philistines gathering in, in, in this huge number to fight against Israel. Saul had gathered some troops back in verse 2, but that number was nothing compared to the amount of, of uh, military forces that the Philistines had gathered there now and camped against Israel. And, and this is the key. If you see this in the middle of verse 5, how was how the Philistine army described? Well, the Philistine troops are described as being as many as the sand on the seashore. As many as the sand on the seashore. Now, with our Bibles open, that gives us pause, because that's not how things are supposed to go. Well, what was God's promise to Abraham? Well, God promised Abraham in Genesis twenty-two seventeen 17, that his offspring, the people of Israel, they'd be as many as the sand on the seashore. Now here, that, that uh, phrase isn't describing Israel. That phrase is describing actually just the Philistine fighters against Israel. And then, and then look at what's happening to the people of Israel in verse 6. We see there how they're hiding in different places. And then in verse 7, the narrator tells us that some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. So, so some of the people of Israel recrossed the Jordan, leaving the land God promised to them. And, and on top of that, they're actually called twice in this chapter, referred to as Hebrews, which may not strike us at first, except that was the way that people foreign to the Israelites would speak about them. The Israelites referred to themselves as Israelites or Jacob's family right here they're called hebrews so so we have all this put together what what, what is the effect of israel trusting and saw the rescue them well instead of israel being as many on this as the sand on the seashore their enemies are as many as the sand on the seashore and instead of israel entering the promised land and being conquerors over their enemies and enjoying god's promised rest instead israel is the one who is being referred to in in foreign terms and in fact they're actually being driven out of that land of rest by their enemies So so it's not a land of rest. In verse 7, it's a land of fear for Israel, we see there. The people are are fearful. So you see what's going on. Instead of the promises of God being realized, instead, because of the trust placed in alternatives to God, it's not just that things are neutral, but things start going backwards. It's the the opposite of life. It's this devolution. And and again, while while this is an ancient story, we see the contemporary importance of this message. Because to trust in the living God isn't just to find oneself um, left whole and at rest and at peace, but, but, but to find oneself pursuing a path of life that positively leads us forward in hope and renewal and all of these kinds of things. However, to trust in alternatives to the living God, it does the exact opposite. It goes in the other direction. It's not just that alternatives don't deliver on the hope, but they actually bring us to this point of falling backwards in a direction away, further and further away from God's promise of life, which is what C.S. Lewis was trying to capture in that initial quote that I read to you, talking about human history. What's gone on in human history? Well, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empire, slavery, all of these kinds of things that C.S. Lewis describes as a long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God, which will make him happy. Is this going backwards from life. So, so it's not just that it doesn't work to trust in alternatives, it's that, it, it's that there's this decreation, there's this opposite effect that takes place. And it may be that you've discovered that. I expect at some level we all experience that if we reflect in our, in our more honest moments. There's, there's what one person has described as a, as a sliding backwards sensation to life without God. I thought this would bring fulfillment, but instead I find myself further and further distanced from the rest I know myself to need. I thought this would bring relief from the pain, but instead I find myself further and further distanced from that relief that I longed for, these kinds of things. Andrew uh, Del Bonco, who is a professor of American Studies at Columbia University, he, he describes culture, and in so doing, he makes this comment as part of his description. He's talking about how culture around us Uh, Is defined, and he says it is the stories and symbols by which we try to hold back the melancholy suspicion that we live in a world without meaning. The melancholy suspicion that we live in a world without meaning. So, So, to center our existence and purpose on something separated from the God of life can be to find ourselves in this place. It's to find ourselves not just neutral, but actually devolving into a kind of meaninglessness. We move further and further from the Lord who is the source of life himself, which is what we see happening in Israel. They're in the land of promise but they're fleeing. They're not uh, many as many as the sand on the seashore. Their enemies are as many as the sand on the seashore. It's all going backwards. So 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 we have our question, what happens when hope is set on alternatives to living God, to the living God? Well, they don't deliver in verses 1 to 4, and even worse than that, they actually devolve away from God's life-giving promises. And then finally, uh, one more thing, in verses 8 to 14 now, one more thing happens, uh, when hope is is set contrary to God, Uh, we see there that those alternatives, do end in failure, but but here's the amazing thing, in that failure, not all hope is lost. So those alternatives end in failure, but not all hope is lost. So, So this is verses 8 to 14. Um, here we read about Saul's downfall. We're going to read about it again in a really heavy way in chapter 15. Um, but, but, uh, and he'll still be around for a few chapters. But here's really the beginning of the end for Saul. Uh, in verse 8, we read how Saul was, was waiting for the appointed time for Samuel to come and make a sacrifice. And we have to think, what, what appointed time do we have in our mind as the narrator has brought us along in this way? Well, that kind of drives us back to chapter 10. If you remember Saul's initial anointing commission from Samuel where where Saul's purpose was to defeat the Philistines and then in chapter 10 he was to wait seven days for Samuel to come and meet him in Gilgal. And so Saul finally gets down to the business he's supposed to be about and now now he's waiting but the troops are deserting him in verse 11. He's actually watching his army leave because as we know from verse 7 they're terrified of the Philistines. There's a whole bunch of them. There's not very many of us. We're out of here. So instead of waiting for Samuel to come and make the offering, uh, we, we know in this context that offerings were made according to God's directive as an expression of trusting in him in battle. So there was this offering that was to be made. But instead of Saul following Samuel the prophet's directives, trusting in the Lord, Saul jumps the gun and he just does this offering without Samuel. After all, I was supposed to wait seven days. Here we are at the end of that. It must have been the evening of the seventh day, whatever it was, and Samuel hadn't shown up. Of course, Samuel shows up just as Saul's finishing in verses 10 and 11. Samuel's obviously upset when he sees what Saul has done, Uh, not because kings could never offer sacrifices, uh, but it seems that this was, was directly connected to Saul's initial commissioning as king, just as the text kind of tells us it was connected to his ongoing status as king. So there's a special uh, situation happening here. And Saul totally ignored the divine directive and just decided to do things his way. And as a result, we really have a kind of Adam in the Garden of Eden situation all over again here. Because Samuel comes and he says to Saul, What have you done? And, and like Adam in the Garden Blamed Eve, like Eve blamed the serpent. What does Saul do? But he starts blame shifting. First of all, verse 11, he says, it's the troops' fault. They were deserting me. And then he says, it's Samuel's fault. that the probably didn't come fast enough. And then it's the Philistines' fault. Saul was afraid they would, they would descend on them. So Saul says at the end of verse 12, I force myself to do it. It sounds kind of childish, doesn't it? I, I know what you said, Samuel. I know it was a directive from God to be obeyed. You're the prophet after all. But all these things were just going on, and so I just, I just forced myself to do it. I decided to take matters into my own hands. I had no other option, really. I'm sure you can understand. But, of course, there was another option. It was the option of trusting in the Lord, knowing that the Lord doesn't need a bunch of troops to win a war. In fact, uh, we won't take the time to run through it all here, but there are a number of interesting narrative parallels to the Gideon story. If you want to go back to Judges and read the Gideon story, I'd encourage you to do so, because it's interesting to parallel it, just to point out one, where Saul here is ultimately left with 600 men in verse 15. That's actually double what Gideon had, and Gideon was still victorious because the Lord gave him victory. But Saul doesn't trust. You see, instead he, he disobeys God's command and he does the sacrifice thing on his own. And like Adam was removed from the garden, so here what happens, but Saul is removed from his kingly position. He, he loses the kingship, Samuel says. You're done. Verses 13 and 14, uh, Samuel tells Saul he's been foolish, he's rejected God's way, and now instead of being established as king, his his reign will not endure. It won't endure. And while it takes a few chapters to see how that ultimately plays out, uh, we do see that this is what happens. Saul, who's a king like the nations, the, the, he's the focus and longing of the people's trust. Uh, ultimately, he doesn't prove to be the deliverer that they needed. Instead, he proves to be a failure. So, so idle, King Saul, he fails here. And we wonder, what does this mean for the people of Israel? Now, now, now what are they left with? The king the king isn't going to do what they needed the king to do is all hope lost. And we can find, that, find ourselves facing that same question too after we've gone after things that don't ultimately satisfy. Is hope lost for me? I see that this thing is actually empty. I see that this thing has actually brought more pain than it has help. I see that these things I've been hoping and ultimately have not drawn me toward life but have pushed me further away from life. And now, and now where am I at? Is it all just over? Is this my place? I'm stuck, languishing, hopeless, these kinds of things. Is that it for me now that my idols have failed? Of course, the answer from the Scriptures is that's not it for you. In fact, the extraordinary hope of the whole Scriptures is even centered in what we read here in verse 14. Because as Samuel says in verse 14, the Lord has found a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have failed. So ultimately what's going to happen now in the narrative, we might think it's actually Jonathan, because Jonathan's doing pretty well. He's at Esau's son even, but it's not Jonathan. It ends up being, it ends up being the shepherd boy David. And with David, the Lord will establish an eternal kingship that ultimately extends all the way to fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ, God's own Son, who comes as the eternal king. The, the, the eternal kingly line will be set now through David. Even as we read the Matthew's Gospel, Paul brings it up in Romans, Jesus is great David's greater son. He's the final king that we need. History begins to move now in that direction, not through Saul, but through David. And, and, and so we see that, that as we come to this narrative, really this is the direction that all of this truth has been driving, that there's no hope apart from the Lord Himself. And ultimately, it is God's plan not to leave us wallowing in hopelessness, but actually to send us the ultimate king that we need to provide for our climactic and eternal well-being, because the Lord Himself is ultimately the one who comes. Jesus comes, the Son of God, and instead of failing, what do we find in King Jesus? Well, Jesus is the one who actually brings life. He's the one who draws us out to life. We read about his ministry in the gospel. You just read those and you ask, what does this tell me about Jesus? Well, Jesus is the one who comes and he heals sickness. Jesus is the one who comes and raises a widow's dead son. Jesus is the one who comes and drives demons away from people's hearts. Jesus is the one who comes and pulls people out of death toward life in significant and regular ways. And ultimately, what does Jesus do? But he proves to be the one who victoriously fights our greatest enemy, not the Philistines, but death itself. Jesus is the one who comes, and because we have rebelled against God, because we've gone contrary to the way of life, death is certain for us. In fact, death and judgment are what are what awaits us in this position separated from God, but Jesus comes and He defeats death. He takes our sins payment upon His own shoulders at the cross, pays that debt so that death is not the final word in our life, but instead life comes to us eternally because of what He accomplished. And so as we trust in Christ, instead of finding us... Uh, with this king who, who who may look good for a moment but then ultimately not satisfy. Instead, as we trust in Christ, we find the Lord's promise, long-promised one has been sent who ultimately brings us through even the fear of death itself to a life of promised hope eternal. That's why we talk about what we talked about on Easter, it, it, isn't it? There's a secure hope there for us because of what King Jesus has done. And so that's where this narrative is is driving us as we're unpacking things. He's the one we need. He's the one who doesn't fail us. And so and so and so we consider all of this and and we recognize that, that we have to search our own hearts to see where we're at on these things. Are there idols present in my heart? I'm asking myself this week as, as I'm preparing this. Have there been some things that have snuck in and started to usurp the supremacy of Jesus in my heart as the one that I'm ultimately trusting in? Are, those thing, are there things that are sneaking in and starting to promise satisfaction apart from the fullness of the truth of who Jesus is and what He calls me to as His follower? And, and I ended up coming across this, which I found very helpful, and so I'll just give it to you. You might find it helpful, too. Uh, I'll leave it with you. It's, it's by David Pallison, who, who was an extremely helpful writer on matters of the heart and following Jesus. He helps us think through the issue of idols in this way. I'll read this to you, and we'll finish. He says this. There is that most basic question which God poses to each human heart. and Here it is. Has something or someone besides Jesus the Christ taken title to your heart's functional trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight? That's a good question. And then he gives some questions to help discern this. He says, to who or what do you look for life-sustaining stability, security, and acceptance? What do you really want and expect out of life? What would really make you happy? What would make you an acceptable person? Where do you look for power and success? These questions, he says, or similar ones, tease out whether we serve God or idols, whether we look for salvation from Christ or from false savior. And then that's where this passage ultimately drives us this morning. There is this true rescuer. There is this one that we need. It's not a king of our own asking like Saul was. It's not, it's not found in, in a life of our own making, this, this desire for wholeness that we have. It's ultimately found centered on this king who's come from heaven. Which, which just leaves us in a place of, of turning to the Lord Jesus even in prayer and saying to him, I, I do return to you again. I come to you knowing that in you I do find restoration. I know that in you I do find hope. I know that in you I find life for what otherwise feels like a dead heart. In you I find eternal life, purpose, rescue, all of these things which will never, never fail because of what you've accomplished. And so in, in Jesus we see again and again we find the one we need and we feel our need for him. In a passage like this that turns our eyes upward and helps us see that hope is not found in anything that we can ever manufacture, but ultimately our hope is found in the King, that God Himself selects, the King that God sends, the ultimate King after God's own heart, Jesus Himself. And So we're thankful for God's Word, uh, which reminds us of these things. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that we would be encouraged by this truth today. Uh, we, we know, we acknowledge so often that we, we wander in what we think will bring satisfaction, but ultimately it is you, Lord Jesus, in whom we hope. We hope in you. You're the author of life. You're the giver of life. You're the way of truth. And we pray, Father, that we would be uh, renewed in the knowledge of Christ this morning, that we would find rest for our weariness, and that in Jesus Christ our hope would be secured forever. We ask this in his name. Amen. Amen.